Hello, and welcome to Unpleasant Movies, the podcast dedicated to harsh and unrelenting cinema. My name is Svada Ogur. And I'm Thomas Simonsen Bambra. And today we are discussing two different movies. Yes, we're talking about two hour-long parts of horror anthologies. First, it's Box as part of Three Extremes, which is a series of three horror shorts by different directors. One of them is Box by Takashi Mika. And also we'll be talking about Imprint, which is Mika's episode from the Masters of Horror series from 2006. And uh, it's the 13th and unaired episode, which was released uh, to DVD as Showtime felt they couldn't show this bit of uh, extreme cinema on TV. It was truly cursed. Yeah. So Imprint is starring Yuki Kodo as the woman, Nishi as Komomo, Billy Drago as Christopher, Toshi Negishi as the madam, Mame Yamada as the touter, and the director of photography is Toyomichi Kurita. And in box, we have Kyoko Hasegawa as Kyoko, Atsuro Watanabe as Yoshi slash Higata, and Mai Suzuki and Yu Suzuki as Kyoko and her sister at age 10. And the cinematography for box is by Koichi Kawakami. So let's start talking about Imprint, I think. The screenplay is written by Daisuke Tengan, who also did the screenplay for Audition and 13 Assassins. He's also written screenplays for a couple of uh, Imamura's films, Warm Water Under Red Bridge and Eel, I think. And it's based on a, a novel by Shimako Iwai called Boki Kyoti. Well, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but... Uh, Boki Kyoti? It means really scary, and it's an Okayama idiom. Okayama being a, an island outside of Japan. Really scary. Yeah. It is scary. Now, Imprint is perhaps, I mean, I think you could say it's probably the most uh, grotesque of... Takashimika's films, and it's probably his most derided, I would yeah. say. It's the movie he finds the most scary of his own work, and the movie he finds most horrible of his own work. Yeah. For good reason. It has some really extreme scenes in it. A good part of the movie is made up of these really intense scenes. Yeah, yeah. It has uh, aborted fetuses thrown into rivers. It has a, a long torture scene with needles forced under nails and in the gums of the teeth. Its imagery is very strong, but it's also one of his most beautiful films, I think. It's very sumptuous. It's, it's very sumptuous, and it also it was financed by U.S. backers, so it had a larger budget than most of his movies so far in his career, mm. and, and it shows. It's really a quite sumptuous movie, a lot of very colorful set design mm. and, and costumes. Yeah, and beautiful so costumes. Mm. Yeah. It's really a striking visual movie. Mm. And um, yeah, as I said, it was unaired. Uh, there was a bit of a back and forth where he negotiated with Mick Garris, who is the creator of the Master of Horror series. There were two seasons, and what they did is they got a lot of like horror directors, like Guillermo del Toro and Stuart Gordon, Wes Craven, I think, was part of it. Just a whole bunch of these people to direct a single episode, and they could do whatever they wanted. There were no restrictions, which is a nice concept. I don't think I saw the whole series, but I think it was okay. Some some good stuff, some not so interesting, yeah. but varied. It's one of these um, horror anthologies from like the early 2000s before it became like a, a big thing like with American Horror Story and that sort of stuff. 
Well, horror anthologists have been a thing for quite a while, but uh, yeah. this is uh, sort of the beginning of the more like cinematic tradition of horror anthology. That's right, yeah, because early 2000s, that's when TV started to become more of a competitor to cinema in some ways, like they're trying to put more money in it, trying to get like uh, big name directors to do stuff. Yeah, and also being a much more freer medium than the constraints of Hollywood cinema has been able to provide for directors in the US. Yeah. And, you know, Showtime, that's for American cable television, and they have less restrictions in some sense. But, I mean, it's not exactly surprising that Imprint uh, was refused to be aired. Well, uh, according to Takashi Miike, he continuously checked during the production of the movie to see if he could do this, if it was allowed. But I wonder how that process went, because yeah. the stuff he put in this episode, I can't believe he ever thought this would pass US censorship. Well, I mean, he might not have seen too much American television. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> well, especially considering the sort of US taboo of abortions. Mm -hmm. It's a huge thing there and a yeah. huge political, uh, you know, hot potato. So. Mm. Anyway, the story in Imprint, it's about an American journalist played by Billy Drago. He's called Christopher, and he travels by boat to a remote island in Victorian era. Something yeah, like it that. is the Victorian era, the Meiji period. He wears kind of like a top hat. <laughs> yeah, he looks like a traditional sort of a gothic character. Yeah. This uh, pale, gaunt face. And, uh, yeah, he looks pretty haunted. <laughs> yeah, and he's searching for his lost love, Komomo whom he knew earlier and had to leave for some reason not explained at this yeah, point. Yeah, it's not specific, the reason he had to, ostensibly because of work or something. Yeah, or, I don't know. yeah, had to go to America or whatever. But he, he's now come back, he's been looking for her for a long while. He's come to this island and it's kind of like a, a somewhat supernatural place in the sense that it's described as a, a cursed place of spirits and demons by the inhabitants. And uh, the main place that we go to there is a brothel where the sex workers kind of reach their hands out in, a, in almost a hellish way out towards us. Yeah, yeah. it's really quite a hellish imagery. Mm. But the frame of the story mm. is this kind of seemingly like a Japanese folk tale or like yeah. a ghost story traditional Japanese tale. A kaidan, as they often call it. Yeah, which the story is based on, as far as I know. I'm not sure if it's based on a specific story. I think it's influenced by several bits, but it is a short story written by Shimoko Iwai, who's kind of like a TV personality and a, a, a writer. Well, I read yeah. that it was oh. based on a specific uh, okay. sort of Japanese ghost story, but it is has been said hard for us to find a lot of very detailed information on this because a lot mm. of primary sources are in Japanese, so... So anyway, he comes to this island and is unable to uh, leave it when he doesn't find her. It's the boat of... only goes once a day or something. Yeah. So he's basically trapped on this island for the night. Yeah. And so uh, he sees a, a prostitute who's kind of hiding in the back in the silhouette. And he chooses her for his nightly companion. And that's the role played by Yuki Kudo. You know, she's nameless. She's just called woman in the cast. And her face is disfigured, drawn to the side, a sort of horrific grin. Yeah. The half of her face is, is, is drawn. She has kind of bluish hair. Yeah, it's got to be said, the costumes for mm. this movie are quite fantastic. Mm. A lot of the characters have very intensely colored hair and stuff. Mm. It, it's sort of reminiscent of anime, or we'll get into discussing it, but quite exotic looking. So Christopher asks the woman if she knows about Komomo. And she says that he's arrived too late. Komomo has killed herself. This makes him very sad. And he asks her to recount her story. And... 
The film consists of three retellings of her story. And for each time, he kind of senses that something's been left out, something's a bit of a lie. So he kind of insists on the truth to come out. And each time the story kind of gets worse and more problematic. And it ends up like a kaidan ghost story with like a supernatural element. The supernatural element is quite long in waiting Mm. before it happens. But towards the end of the story, it turns into this quite supernatural story. So... Initially, the tale that the woman tells is kind of like um, Madame Butterfly-ish. Komomo coming to the island and working as a prostitute, but believing that there's a man who loves her who's going to come and get her and kind of denying her role as as a sex worker. And then the other prostitutes plot to have her tortured by the madam of the house. Yeah, and the woman also tells her own story of how she became a prostitute. She came from these hardworking but good parents Mm. that she eventually uh, got taken away from Mm. and uh, put into prostitution. So she was quite, uh, you know, from an innocent background Mm. in this first telling of the story. And then it sort of, uh, it evolves into this second telling of the story, which is more problematic for the teller and for Christopher finds it more distressing. Yeah, because initially, in the first version, Komomo and the woman, they're they're friends. And what's happened to Komomo is that someone has stolen a ring. A jade ring from the madam. And kind of planted a hairpin of Komomo's in her room. And then she's consequently tortured by the madam or by the orders of the madam. Actually, the torturer is played by the author, Shimako Iwai. Uh, That's quite interesting. Yeah, it's an interesting choice. But yeah, Komomo is basically framed for this uh, theft and she's being exposed to this incredibly intense torture. It is very stylized Mm. and uh, colorful and intense, Mm. but also very unyielding in the way it shows all the shit being done to her. Yeah, it's very graphic. Very graphic. You see like these needles pressed under the nails very directly and it's unpleasant to watch. Uh, so in the, the second version of the story, she tells that she is the one who planted the hairpin. She stole the jade ring and she planted the hairpin to put the blame on Kumomo. Yeah. And she frames it as kind of an act of kindness to send it to heaven. Is that how she says it? Well, not the theory or the framing, but the murder of Kumomo. Mm. She admits to murdering, to strangling her after the torture. She's just in agony. Yeah. And she frames it as sending her to heaven. These women on this island basically are in hell. The life they lead is just horrible. And of course, everything is extremely stylized as well. So it really does seem like this hellish place. Mm. So it makes sense for her to sort of say, yeah, I'm, I'm sending her to a better place. I didn't want her to experience all this agony. Kind of it makes sense, but yeah, <laughs> still it it's kind terrible. of makes sense, but it's still a bit suspicious or, yeah. or weird. So uh, Christopher doesn't believe. He kind of screams at her to tell him the truth. And she asks, why do people always ask for the truth? Sometimes it's better not to know. Then she recounts the last version where... She tells of her own story. It's growing up by alcoholic parents who were also brothers and sister. Her mother was not a midwife, but she performed abortions for other women. Yeah, performing illicit abortions. She also killed her own father after being raped by him. And there's also a Buddhist monk that she's talked about earlier who was kind of a a kind monk. In this last version, he's also implied to have threatened her with images of hell if yeah. he didn't listen to him. It's also sort of implied that there's this abusive thing yeah. going on. Um, 
Yeah, he's a bit too close <laughs> to her. Yeah. It feels off. For sure. He shows her this scroll written in blood with these scenes from hell. It's interesting. One of the, one of the characters there has this blade on the heel of his foot. Like uh, Itchy from Itchy the Killer. Oh. I don't know if that's a little Easter egg or something, but I, I noticed it. Yeah, that's nice. She was also bullied by the local children, and she kind of reveals that she has kind of a, a monstrous conjoined sister who's like a hand on the side of her forehead that kind of has its own demonic voice, which kind of pops up. And, yeah, it has a mouth. And it's like a really greedy and angry and vengeful character of its own that drives her to murder her own father and also uh, wants the jade ring um, yeah it's almost like this physical representation of her id or her inner like really wanton visually it's almost comical yeah it looks like a scene from a really cheesy horror movie mm. um, yeah it, it's kind of like a comical puppet in a way yeah there's an actual hand and then the face on the hand is like comical eyes with teeth that clatter and uh, yeah it kind of looks weird mostly uh, a bit funny it looks weird but it's one of the things in this movie that feels very takashi miike uh, yeah. his sort of own quirky sense of humor yeah he loves you know these fluttering tongues and, and weird ass bodily things mm. going on yeah so he's a, he's a bit of his his humor there uh, but she reveals that it's still her and not the sister that killed kamomo yeah, it's the Siamese twin is the one who instigated the theft of the jade ring, but she's still the one who decided to kill Komomo. There's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of layers to the story. There's a lot of dynamism and interplay between the characters. And the, there's a lot of questions about what's real, what's not, what is the actual truth. It's a very complex story. I mean, it was supposed to be like this horror anthology episode. I don't think they imagine it to be this kind of complex, layered mm. story because it's a very, very, very dense story. Yeah, and it's really interesting, I think. I mean, it's easy to just focus on, like, the grotesqueries. I mean, that's what really jumps out at you, yeah. but there's certainly a lot more to it than yeah. just grotesque imagery. To understand it properly, because, again, you know, it was considered as a misogynistic film. Yeah, probably um, his most maligned film. Probably one of the films that most reviewers found the most disgusting, especially in the West, yeah. uh, even with the fascination of J-horror and this type of cinema. But understanding this movie, it's important to know a bit about the author of the story, Iwai. So I'll just read a quote by her as she talks about her motivation for writing the story. And she says, um, I was trying to tell a sad story, not so much a scary one. But when I was finished, it was just plain scary. I was an unsuccessful author of young women's novels. And I wanted to return to prominence as an author, but I could not write. My private life suffered, and my husband and I were talking of divorce. Then I thought, women are so disadvantaged. A sad existence that has nowhere to run or hide. I felt strongly about this. I thought I should write about women. I wanted to write about women, and this is the story that resulted. Women with no place to escape. Literally, with no place to escape in this story. They're trapped on an island, but also, of course, metaphorically in this life of forced prostitution. It's really interesting, this movie in, in light of Mika's career as a whole, mm. because it's such a female-centric story. Yeah. And I think it really bears a really hard feminist reading of it, actually. Yeah. It's, it's very focused on female suffering. 
And a lot of the criticisms of this movie has been that it's been misogynistic and really sort of fetishizing violence against women. But I think on the contrary, it really forces the viewer to deal with oppression and violence against women. And it doesn't show females as just being objects for torture. On the contrary, it shows them as being real people. And so the horror you see inflicted upon them becomes that much more horrific. Also, I wouldn't say that the violence is fetishistic. It's horrifying, certainly, and very graphic. But it's not sexualized. Right, which is why I find it sort of a baseless criticism. Mm. It's a very superficial reading of a movie. Also, it's, it's worth noting that the only male character is Christopher. And he, while he instigates the retelling, most of the story is about women and most of the screen time being female actors. And originally, the story was written in monologue form from the point of view of the malformed woman. Kind of, I imagine, like Edgar Allan Poe's Telltale Heart, which right. kind of slowly reveals new layers as it goes along. So the character Christopher is Daisuke Tengen's addition, and uh, he's focused on truth, like the existential examination of truth. That's kind of his way to adapt it into a screenplay. And... Yeah, but it's interesting because the character is also searching for a fantasy almost, like mm. this idealized exotic Japanese woman that is searching for in vain, like wandering restlessly, haunted by the memory of this mm. woman wandering around the country. And, and honestly, it sort of, it has echoes of this otaku, this Western sort of deep fascination and longing for this idealized Japanese woman that's sort of pathetic. Yeah. So there's, there's quite a few interesting interpretations of imprints uh, out there. I found a couple of articles I thought was quite interesting. There's a Spanish article written by Victorio Sanchez Valmorisinco called Textual Analysis of Imprint, Influences of the Greek Myth of Orpheus and Eurydice. And formerly there's quite a few uh, similarities. He starts riding a ferry similar to like the river Styx with Orpheus, you know, and he's looking for his lost love and he's kind of traveling to the underworld. Yeah, it's um, a very, very common mythological theme to travel to the underworld via boat. Yeah, it's Charon, the... Um, the ferryman. The ferryman, yeah. And um, the story of Orpheus is, of course, the hero of Greek mythology who's this big musician about to get married to the nymph Eurydice. She gets bitten by a snake and dies on the wedding day. So he travels back to Hades to bring her to life. And he uses his music to enchant first Cerberus, three-headed dog, and then Hades and Persephone. And they give him the deal that, you know, you can bring her back as long as you don't look at her before you come to the land above. And just as he's about to leave Hades, he turns around too early, beleaguered by self-doubt and, or maybe by mistake, there's a lot of ambiguity. And uh, she dies again. And formally, there's, there's a lot of similarities, I think, with imprint. I agree. Like, the whole setting is incredibly underworld-esque. It's very mm. dark and grim, uh, yet colorful and intense, like mm. this infernal, hellish place. Mm. It's clear that he's sort of gone beyond this transient point, like this, this liminal space mm. between worlds. And it's even commented upon directly by the woman who says mm. that this is a place for spirits and ghosts. Mm. It is a haunted place. But as she says, which I find very interesting in, in light of the sort of female-centric point of view of this mm. story, is that she says, it's not the ghosts that bother me, it's the people. Yeah. And towards the end, when the woman has revealed the full story, Christopher goes into this mad rage, unable to accept the truth, and shoots her. And she says, we can't die, she and her sister, the hand creature. And he shoots her some more. 
And when she gets up, it's turned into Komomo, who then grabs the back of her head and takes out some of her brain and <laughs> shows it to him. Yes. Very, really very gruesome. Yeah. So there's a lot of you know, like ambiguity in terms of identity and representation. Right. And, and also he comes to this place to search for a dead woman, basically, yeah. to bring her back into his life. I find that scene with the brain and the shooting scene very interesting. Mm. It really ties it together for me as the woman character really being the archetypal woman mm. and, and her suffering being all yeah. women's suffering throughout the history of the brutality against women. Mm. Uh, yeah, aside from Christopher and Komomo, all the characters are archetypes like mother, father, sister, madam. It really is this Ur story. It really does feel sort of primeval in a way. Yeah, and, and that the roles are meant to be representational. Also, it's revealed, like, the hand sister monster, she kind of tells that she knows Christopher's secrets, and it turns out he's raped and killed his own sister, who was a child, and apparently the reason he loved Komomo was because she reminded him of her sister. Yeah, so it also puts the sort of hero, uh, in quotation marks, of the story mm. in this horrific light mm. as well, which is very interesting um, in light of the beginning of the story, where it seems like he wants to bring Komomo out of this misery and he mm. wants to, you know, give her a good life. But turns out he's a bit of a scumbag too, to put it mildly. And there's some ambiguity the roles of Komomo and the sister, are they somehow connected? And is he guilty in Komomo? I mean, he's guilty in Komomo coming to this hellish place originally because he left her and she was alone. She had nowhere to go. But does it also insinuate that he's had something to do with her death? And he certainly has something to do with her death at the end of it when he shoots the scarred-faced woman. Certainly. I think the torment of Christopher is very well played by Billy Drago. Not just by his acting, but, but by the way he looks. He does yeah. look really haunted by his past. Yeah. Uh, so he has a worn face. Really yeah. worn and gaunt. And apparently was handpicked by Takashi Miike yeah. for the way he looked. I'm sure he did. Um, yeah. So a really great casting there just visually. But also he, he plays the part really well, I think, mm. in a way that's not really... I guess you wouldn't really see this as a typical performance in a Western movie. He does play it in a sense that feels quite strange, but I, quite fitting for the movie. The acting is kind of expressionistic in a way. It's not like classy drama acting, but it fits very well and it's, it's quite nice, I think. Yeah, it's quite raw. Yeah. It feels quite volatile. As you said, there's a bit ambiguity there as to his sort of involvement and role in this whole thing. It is said in one of the storytellings that her family got into debt and she was put to foster parents that mm. sold her off into prostitution as a way of uh, mm. repaying the debt. But I don't know if that's true or not. Like, it's very unclear what the actual story mm. is there. Komomo seems incredibly naive in the various tellings of her yeah. story, but I'm not sure if any of them really are correct. Like, And in a sense, it doesn't really matter that much, I think, because... I don't think there's any real pure truth there. It all seems very subjective. Yeah, and that's part of the theme, I think, because these women working in a the brothel, they're all subjugated to, like, male control. And as the author, Iwai, was mentioned in a quote, that it's a place where there's no escape. 
and also the truth and definition of truth. You know, the story he kind of wants to hear is maybe the the Madame Butterfly, the romantic tale of the Westerner coming to the Eastern land and finding a beauty and with a wish to bring her home, yeah. which is kind of like naive fantasy. Not only that, uh, but it's sort of uh, patronizing in the way that the way to rectify her position in life is to bring her home to America, mm. you know, bring her away from this uh, weird, exotic, but probably dangerous and criminal place. Mm. He's kind of like a savior in that sense. Yeah, right. Uh, of course, he's having, you know, raped and murdered his uh, young sister. He's not much of a savior. He's a very problematic uh, character. Yeah, like uh, his whole character, the whole Christopher character is such a sort of delightful reversal of mm. the traditional western hero in these sort of japanese exoticism mm. stories you know in one example his daughter in these flashbacks is actually played by a japanese girl mm. but they've superimposed these blue pupils yeah. on her eyes and it looks really quite fake but quite mm. like interesting visually mm. but at the same time it, it really reminds me of the way western people make movies about asian countries they mm. often cast western people or, yeah. you know really the casting is all wrong for the period and the peoples. The language is all wrong. As is interesting in this movie because they don't speak Japanese. It's all in English Mm. and quite broken English in a lot of places. And, you know, initially watching this back in the day and also now aesthetically I was just, just kind of wishing man I just wish they were speaking Japanese and then he could have like a broken Japanese accent instead that would feel much more satisfying yeah but then I got into reading some further criticism of the film and actually it makes a very interesting point because there's, there's another article I found which was really good by a guy called William Lung and the article is called Misogyny as Radical Commentary Rashomon Retold in Takashimika's Masters of Horror Imprint. And a lot of the um, you know initial reviews of Imprint they compared it to Rashomon. Naturally enough, Rashomon is a film by Akira Kurosawa. Iconic filmmaker. Yeah, he's kind of like the big Western import of Japanese cinema. He's like the guru, the one that everyone's seen who's into like classical uh, Japanese cinema. Yeah, and also been incredibly influential on Western yeah. directors. And Rashomon is is a story related in different ways. Like there's a situation and there's different people telling the story in each their different way. And There's three different versions yeah. of the story there too. So it really does yeah. have a real resonance with Imprint in that sense. It does share a lot of the framework. Yeah, It's an examination of truth. It's a really good movie. And William Long, he does a close comparison of the two. You know, Kurosawa is considered one of the classical humanist directors, exploring different themes in different ways, in different genres. You know, he has a big filmography, lots of different stuff. But one of the things that he's kind of lacking is stories about women. He has maybe a couple that focused on women and he has, but his films typically don't have very many strong female roles. And part of William Lang's criticism is that Rashomon frames the female perspective as very doubtful and like the good story and the truth comes through the male characters. She's kind of framed as an immoral not only that, but the story really revolves around the killing of the samurai. It's, mm. it's very male-centric. That's the real crux of the story. Mm. And the rape of the wife is viewed as something... It's it's just a part of the story. It's part of the process of uh, unraveling this story. It's mm. not really viewed as a thing on its own. And it's also viewed as problematic for the wife. Yeah, Mainly problematic for the wife because being raped disrespects the man. Yeah. So it says something about the point of view 
and conversely, Takashimike has often been criticised for his representation of women. In many of his films, it's quite brutal. And there's like part of a quote where he says something like, I'm paraphrasing, generally speaking, if you look at my movies and think they're misogynistic, you're right. But that's only the beginning of what he says, because he's talking more about like your interpretation as a viewer and what you take out of it, not necessarily his intentions. It's more about, like, if that's what you think, then that's that's on me. But I think we can understand pretty clearly of his other films and this as well, that, that he's very invested in the troubles of women and male structures and male gaze, putting women in extremely unpleasant situations. Yeah, and making you deal with it mm. as a viewer. But part of what he says in that interview mm. is that he does have an intention, but he puts that intention into his movie and he wants his movie to do the talking for him. And so if you get the sense that it's misogynistic then in a sense that's true because he is telling you what he wants to tell you through his movie but that's not his intention mm. that's your sort of interpretation of it but his intention is definitely there in the movie yeah according to himself and i think that attitude is kind of similar to what david lynch says about his movies he's not really interested in talking about the meaning of his movies to the audience after they see it he wants the work to speak for itself so i, I think he's similar there yeah and it's a very you know postmodernist approach to this which the article also goes into depth of comparing and contrasting it to the more modernist approach of kurosawa mm. And the more postmodernist take on it does sort of give him the ability to play around with different views, different modes of expression and different viewpoints. And so showing misogyny, for instance, in a movie doesn't necessarily mean that he holds those views. And mm. especially concerning Takashi Miike, considering he views himself as one of the types of directors that really does transition from project to project, taking on whatever he finds interesting and doesn't really consider it in any depth before he says yes to a project. Yeah, there's a quote uh, from Miike where he says, I think there are two types of directors. One is the type that is very careful of himself and chooses the subjects that fit him and that he really wants to do and he does them carefully. The other type does one thing after another and is not afraid of changing himself. He changes naturally while making these films one after another. I am the second type. And when Mika was picked for this Masters of Horror series, you know, I think he was kind of taken aback. I think he's he seems to have some amusement and a slight impatience with like the idea of him as a director of extreme cinema. He does a lot of things. He does like kids' movies. You know, he's he's really postmodernist in the sense that he does a mashup of genres all the time. He's not really set in a single mode of expression or He's quite adaptable. I think that's really the essence of his quote about mm. these two types of directors. If you view more traditional directors like Ingmar Bergman or mm. Akira Kurosawa, they are adapting. They're always adapting stuff. They're always sort of creating, molding their works. Whereas Takashi Miki is in more of a vein of a true postmodernist filmmaker in that he does mold his work, but the work molds him too. And he responds to it in a way more organic fashion. Mm. It is way more open to being influenced by the projects themselves. Mm. Um, that's very fascinating. And it's a very big contrast between these sort of two modes of movie making. Yeah. But he's also uh, expressed directly puzzlement 
connect with the way Western audiences are so fascinated with the gore and blood and the sort of brutal aspects of his movies, whereas his comedies or dramas or period pieces mm. aren't really received in the same way in the West, which is really interesting and also really typical of the way the West always has this fascination with violence. Mm. Like you see it in one example I can think of is the, the way games are marketed in the West contra the East. Mm. In Japan specifically, like in games like Kirby. In Japan, they'll have these promotional things where he looks really cute. Mm. Whereas when you market it in America, he has his angry face. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's, it's like this uh, appeal to this more aggressive macho sort of machismo thing, which is really absurd in the context of Kirby. Also, movies are marketed in the same way. There's actually some examples in the article that we're talking about Mm. where you can see the way Rashomon, for instance, is portrayed on an American movie poster where you have uh, Mifune with a knife standing there all bloodthirsty, whereas the Japanese poster is more like dramatic but doesn't have any weapons. Mm. Um, And it's the same with imprint. The American poster has sort of these needles sticking out from Komomo's gums in this horrific uh, rictus grin. Whereas the Japanese version almost looks like a drama movie. Yeah. So like the focus is the torture scene for the American audience. To right. So it's interesting that that becomes the sort of criticism of the movie when it's clearly dealing with it in this really interesting and postmodernist mm. way. And there are a lot of things about Imprint that implies that Takashi Miike is kind of dealing with it in the movie, like this exoticism of Eastern cultures and the fact that they are talking in English and not Japanese, which comes off as weird. That's because it's about a Western perception of the East in a much bigger way. Yeah, and also a way I sort of read that is... Mm. Almost the entire movie is, I'm just picturing this, Mm. but he's like, oh, so you want me to create this Western horror slasher brutal thing for you guys. Mm. I will give you exactly what (laughs) you think you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're not going to like it. Yeah. Yeah, the images are really horrifying. Now, that being said, like the Western language, I like it on an intellectual level that it did it, but I don't think it serves the movie well. Like when you're watching it, it does sort of take away something. But like, I I do appreciate the sort of, um, if that is the theory behind Mm. it. But he said himself that he he found it strange that in Schindler's List, for instance, they're talking English when you could have found German actors to actually portray that. But it's interesting when directors deal with the issue of language in a very frank manner. Like, I really enjoyed the way they did it in Chernobyl, where none of the actors had these fake Russian accents that you Mm. normally have in uh, Western media Mm. portraying Mm. Soviet-era stuff. And it worked a lot better that way, Mm. because it took away some of the pretense that you always know is there when you have English actors portraying other language cultures. Mm. And in this film, there's a point that William Lang does as well, is that the English language is kind of defined by the Asian accent. So it might be annoying to us in a way, but it's also because we kind of expect that it should be in English already. Like we project our needs and intentions on that product or like the American expectation of, you know, not watching subtitles or whatever. Yeah, and also this Western sort of ideal mm. of authenticity, mm. which we don't really have the same tools as uh, Asian people have mm. to sort of gauge the authenticity of. 
And Takashimika always has been playing around with language and other languages than Japanese in his movies. Mm, that's true, yeah. Like, for instance, we discussed Itch the Killer, where you have this Chinese sex worker mm. speaking in English in mm. the movie. And it seems weird and sort of a bit out of place. Mm. But at the same time, it's interesting that he dares to play around with these things that are often viewed as a bit tacky or taboo in the Western mindset. Also, in that film, they're speaking like Mandarin and some Korean, I think. And that doesn't really register necessarily in terms of the multilingual nature of the film for Western audiences. For us, it's just like uh, Asian language. Yeah, they're speaking and, Asian. <laughs> and uh, English language, <laughs> which is kind of the normalized Western language. Yeah, so it's quite a playful movie for such a mm. horrific uh, theme and, and content. And the story itself, it's like it has every horrific thing you can think of mm. like pedophilia incest mm. rape abortion literally everything mm. you can think of but at the same time it's very playful in the way it plays with the modes of cinema of the modes of storytelling western versus japanese storytelling mm. it's very playful in that sense it feels a bit like he's in kind of like a, a trickster mode and playing a lot with the expectation of asian extreme cinema and pushing a few buttons yeah but it is funny because mm. Yeah, masters of horror. Yeah. Also, he's the real master of horror. <laughs> and he is. He's clearly, like, has thought more about it and is more interesting in mm. sort of exploring the medium of this type of genre mm. movie or genre anthology. It's really admirable. But it's interesting, though, because he hasn't done that much in the films that are explicitly horror. He, he did the One Missed Call, which was a big hit. It's kind of a, a Ringu... Um... Yeah, I saw it and I honestly don't remember much of it. Yeah. It was kind of mediocre in, in my view. But... And I think he has a couple of other ones, but pure horror movies, he's not really done too much of that. Not too much extreme stuff either. Like It seems to be like this period around mm. the late 90s, early 2000s, where he really dealt a lot with that. Yeah, so this came out in 2006. Yeah. And since then, he hasn't really done much extreme cinema. He has some films that have, they're not extreme cinema, but he has like Lessons of Evil, which is about a teacher who creates a scenario where all his pupils have to kind of fight to survive. It's an okay movie. It, it doesn't really go as far as something like Battle Royale. But in some ways, it feels like Imprint finishes his chapter on like the extreme cinema productions that he's done in a very beautiful way like yeah. the way it comments on extreme cinema mm. and western preoccupation with violence and stuff like it's interesting we're talking about takashi Mika and we mm. only discussed his horrible movies but mm. of course this podcast is about extreme and yeah. unpleasant cinema so in that sense we're sort of obligated to do that but i do find it very interesting as a capstone for his extreme cinema it's very nice. At the very end of the film imprint, after the credits roll, there's an image of the malformed woman. The camera's kind of gliding around some see-through curtains towards her side. And she turns around, looking at the camera quite contently. And she kind of smiles and shrugs knowingly while she's like grilling some fish. Yeah. And it's kind of setting where she's doing something she likes. She seems quite content. And the knowing look, which also William Lang points out, is kind of a, a fun pointer at us as the audience. Oh, yeah. And uh, now we've gotten what we wanted. Aren't you satisfied, uh, in a sense? Uh, and apparently that scene was at the request of the author hmm. who wanted to have a nice meal. Yeah. <laughs> The actor? The author. Uh, yeah. Or the actor. Either way, it was sort of the request was to get some rockfish and uh, have a nice meal. There's a quote here from Takashi Mika talking about the epilogue. 
This time, it was supposed to be a scene with Kudo-san, the lead. We talked about what we should do. What should she be doing, we discussed. I said, maybe she's grilling fish, she said. Grilling a fish, that's good. There's no particular reason. She said it should be a rockfish. It's a fish with scary eyes. She happily grills this. There are things she likes not depicted in the movie. She doesn't get to eat too often. So she got her hands on rockfish, which she likes. So she has an expression not seen in the movie. I tried it, and it was a mysterious scene. I just like the sort of irreverence mm. he does approach these things with. He sort of, he lets, he goes with the flow. He sort of allows for these accidents to happen. And it, it is like you mentioned David Lynch earlier. It's reminiscent of the way he works with mm. stuff too. He takes an accident and makes it into something. Like the most famous probably is Bob in Twin Peaks, which was a set mm. designer or something. And he was uh, accidentally caught in a mirror. Mm. And David Lynch thought that looked interesting and just decided to incorporate it into Twin Peaks. Mm. And so it is in stark contrast to these sort of auteur filmmakers who really plan everything in meticulous detail. It's a sort of much more jazzy way of going about mm. it. You go with the mistakes and you repeat it and you double down on the mistakes. I really like that irreverent yeah. mode of filmmaking. There's an openness to that approach. and Right. But it's still like the fish bears some interpretation. Like it, it's kind of one-eyed which can, uh, you know, imply like a impaired vision. Yeah. But it can also refer to like the one-eyed monster, a phallic, a phallic symbol. symbolism. Yeah. <laughs> so, in a sense, she's kind of grilling like the male gaze uh, a bit. Yeah, there are a lot of scenes actually in the movie which can be really interpreted in a heavily symbolic way. Mm. But it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. No, that's a really nice and open thing about yeah. this movie and, and Takashi Miki's work in general. Mm. It's very open. In a way that's maybe weird to describe it as, it's very inclusive for such horrific cinema. Mm. And we should talk about Box as well. Yeah. It's from 2004. And as also part of an anthology, there was originally a collection of films called just Three, which was different directors. And then they made Three Extremes, which had Park Chan-wook, Fruit Chan and Takashi Miike. This is a, like a collaborative Asian project. It's not orchestrated by Americans. And he's in a very different mode here. Yeah, Master of Horror was only Western movie makers, I think, with the yeah. exception of Takashi Miike, where he That's was right. the only Asian director. Seemingly thrown in as a... Oh, well, I guess we got to have an Asian director as <laughs> yeah. well. Whereas Three Extremes is more Asian-focused. And I think it's fair to say that Miike's film is the least extreme of these three. It's not really an extreme film at all. It has a much more subtle, sombre, regretful vibe. It's almost poetic. It feels shorter than it is almost. It's mm. a very simple story. But at the same time, it's quite confusing as well. It has a dreamlike quality. And the lines drawn between the main character, Kyoko, being awake, dreaming, remembering stuff from her childhood. Yeah. She talks about a recurring dream too, which is like the, the blurring of lines between dream waking mm -hmm. and sleeping. Yeah, it's very fluid. Uh, but there's also this duality, this twin situation, mm -hmm. which also is part of Imprint, which does make it interesting in, in that light. Yeah. It does have a lot of the same dynamics of the main character being a twin. Yeah. It's not meant to shock, but it's a beautifully shot movie. Really? It's um, really like it's sumptuously shot mm. and it's very unlike Imprint, which is a more colorful and intense mm. and sort of surreal uh, mm. movie like cinematography. Yeah, like, it uses a lot of visual motifs, but it's not as... I mean, there's some symbolism, but it's very clear. It doesn't really dwell into symbolic ambiguity and disturbing imagery in that way. No, there is some of that, but it's a much more sober movie, mm. in my view. 
And also, in my view, it's not quite as good as imprint. Mm. Like the characters, you don't really feel a real attachment to them. It does feel mm. almost like a short poem or a little yeah. just vignette. And so in that sense, it's not really worse. It's just sort of a different mode of storytelling. It's uh, very different. I think it does have some very striking imagery. The story, it's about a female author, Kyoko. It starts out with her delivering a script for her new book to her editor, publisher, and uh, he's very appreciative. And as he leaves, he gives her a gift, which is a small music box. And she kind of, I guess the first imagery is of her dream, where you see a box being buried in like a snowy landscape. It's clear that this box has a, has a big significance yeah. in the story. And after that, she sort of reminisces about her childhood yeah. as one part of this duo in this circus troupe. And they're like acrobatics. Yeah, she uh, and her twin sister... Yeah, they're acrobats yeah. and they're contortionists and mm. they get squeezed into these boxes as part of a stage show. Yeah, controlled by their father who wears a mask. Yeah. And it's the same actor who plays the editor slash love interest and the father. So Yoshi and Higata. Yeah, are they the same? It's the same actor. Yeah, the same actor, but it's not the same character. Well, it's not explicitly, un- but there's implied there's a... It's a bit unclear because I the movie was kind of confusing to me, mm. even though it's very few characters and mm. quite a simple plot line. Mm. But the line between reality and dream is a bit blurred there, and I wasn't quite sure what was happening at points. I think, in a sense, it's kind of archetypal as well. Like, the roles are archetypal. Yeah. The male figure as father or, or lover, as, as, like, the lines blurring between the roles there a bit. There's a general theme of claustrophobia being boxed in, which is part of the act as contortionists. But there are also a lot of scenes with plastic pressing up against her face or drawn over her as a big plastic bag. Yeah, sort um, of nightmares. And there's a really beautiful scene that shows a small doll of her being contorted with like these um, creaky sounds and uh, being covered in the plastic as well. Yeah, that's a really good scene and really quite strange too. It's almost like it's a voodoo doll or something. Kind of like a series of these close-up shots of the doll being covered in plastic and then crushed and crumpled together, intercut with scenes of her. Yeah, and she's outside, like in the snow. Mm. Really weird, like with the sound and Mm. stuff. Yeah, quite beautiful too. The sound's interesting because it's quite unlike the sound design in the other films that we talked about in Takajimike. It's much more muted and much more delicate there's a lot of silence or apparent silence in this film. And it doesn't really have these weird body sounds that are kind of squishy and stuff. No, and there's like a slight moment of abrasiveness mm. with some jump cuts mm. early on in the movie. Mm. Sort of to build tension or something. Mm. But that's really the only part that's abrasive in that sense. The movie does feel quite different from a lot of his other quote-unquote extreme stuff. Yeah. Um, and also has some of the horror imagery of like a young girl with hair covering the face or just hidden in the doorway. Yeah, like traditional J-horror stuff. Yeah, it has a bit of that. But it moves more away from that as the film goes along, really. Yeah, it seems like it's going to be like this J-horror mm. movie. And then it turns into this quite psychological thing instead. Yeah. But it's quite tranquil, too, for yeah. such a, a harrowing movie. Mm. It doesn't really have the humor that I often find quite appealing in his films. It doesn't have any humor at all. Um, it's very, like I said, it's a much more sober movie. Mm. It's not as playful in that sense, but it's beautifully edited and it's very dreamy in a way. Yeah, yeah. the cinematography is great. The mm. framing is good. The editing is good. The sound design is really, really mm. nice. Like it's very well put together. Everything mm. really works. 
But maybe not as interesting. No, it does feel like more airy. It doesn't mm. feel as substantial. Mm. It's not really as interesting a look into something. It's really more of a, of just this this sad tale. Mm. I don't feel like there's a lot I need to discuss about it. Mm. You know, it does feel like an interesting little thing. Mm. But it's about the same length as Imprint actually, yeah. and it does feel so much shorter. It feels much shorter, yeah. It's not thematically as potent, I think. But it is very interesting in terms of talking about Takashimika's different modes yeah. and how it compares to Imprint. It does also have some really sumptuous imagery. There's some, the scenes of the acrobats, the young twins, the lighting there, mm. and the backdrop of this yokai. Uh, and mm. It's very, very beautiful. Yeah, these the big, lighting, yeah. big red flat surfaces and this blue demon. Uh, yeah, and, and it's very warmly lit. Yeah. And it's contrasted with these outdoor scenes of snow. And mm. it's very blue and very cold. So visually, it's really beautiful. And uh, the story is also a tale about female suffering. It's sad. Yeah. Her twin sister dies by accident. There's a situation where her twin sister, Shoko, is praised by her father and given a necklace, which is not exactly jealousy, but a feeling of insufficiency in herself, in Kyoko. Yeah, there's a sense of favoritism, and mm. she does feel insufficient. Like, she's not being belittled or anything. No. She just she isn't favored. Yeah, and she also finds the father kind of curled up sleeping together with i'm not sure if that's meant to be an incestuous thing that's how i read it like it feels like it's supposed to imply yeah. incest or yeah and there is some sexual imagery yeah. i mean initially it could also look like just favoritism in terms of physical contact maybe i would think that's maybe a more naive way of yeah. looking at it but it could be it's not very explicit yeah that's what i thought at first but then there's some sexual imagery right. later on that kind of implies stronger that there is a like a, a sexual connection right and also uh, knowing takashi Miike, <laughs> you know you just sort of bring that baggage into it yeah so while her sister is practicing contortion in one of the boxes she kind of locks the box and she says i don't want to hurt you i just want to have some of the attention i'm paraphrasing but yeah she basically like wants to be her for a day or yeah something. but her father catches her in the act and gets really angry and there's a scuffle or something yeah. and she cuts the father's face with a dart yep and she bumps into some uh, source of fuel or... It's a heating, like an oven. Yeah, and the tent burns down and her sister dies. Uh, apparently. Apparently. Uh, yeah, because it does have a twist at the end. Right, but I'm not sure if that's... Like, it's a bit unclear. Yeah, that's what it sets up anyway, that, that she's, she's guilty in accidentally killing her sister and that she's dealing with that guilt. And it's really well done, like when she's running from the burning tent. Mm. It looks really, mm. really gorgeous. But then at the end, as it's, you know, gone through this dream sequences several times, it kind of reveals that her and her still young sister, who's still a child, but she's a grown-up woman at 25, they're conjoined twins. But to me, that's more symbolic. I don't really feel that that's supposed to be a representation of an... No, I don't think she's actually a Siamese. It's more symbolic of her living with that sort yeah. of guilt and, and living with the memory of her sister mm. still alive within her. But yeah, because there's this sort of reappraisal of the situation where she goes to the old circus tent yeah. and finds out that it hasn't burned down. It's mm. only burned a portion of the floor, mm. but the sister is still dead but she's mm. moving in the box and the father comes in and he's part publisher part father mm. like i'm i'm a bit confused by all that yeah. honestly to be it's very know. associative yeah and it um, reminds me a bit of the sort of denouement of audition you have this sort of dream sequence and sort of dealing with past issues characters mm. popping up and sort of it's uh doesn't work as well in this movie i think as it does in audition 
I agree because you have the in addition that the yeah. character Asami, who's yeah. the antagonist, I guess, An- anti-hero. <laughs> anti-hero. That's the in the article that there's this disparaging comment about audition mm-hmm. where it's like this Cinderella, which at the strike of twelve becomes a, a dominatrix or something. Yeah. That's off. That's completely off. In what way is she a dominatrix? She's a psychopath. Like, it's not... Yeah, whatever. That's... It was a really good article, but just that point is just the superficial reading of audition. I don't get what he's thinking about there. But yeah, you know, initially, neither of these two of his works have been my favorite Mika stuff, but at the reappraisal, I think Imprint is very interesting. It carries a lot of interpretations well yeah i i really like imprint it's one of the movies of takashi miki that has stuck with me the most imagery wise but also the torture scenes are some of the most horrific but really the ambiance of that movie is Mm. really interesting Mm. and uh and really has stuck with me for a long time but rewatching it i actually liked it even better Mm. and also reading about it has made me appreciate it more like the contrasting of kurosawa's works for instance and earlier stories uh, and just viewing it in light of the history of Japanese cinema and Western versus Asian cinema, it's really quite an interesting anomaly, this little thing. Yeah, and it kind of reminds me a little bit of sort of a, a lower budget version of something like Kwaidan or Jiguku or these, you know, extremely beautiful Japanese classical ghost stories that have these elaborate sets, striking colors, you know, these ghost stories, uh, Portrait of Hell. Yeah, it also reminds me of some Korean cinema Mm. where you have these also sort of more traditional tales, which can also be really harrowing and intense, Mm. like uh, spring, summer, winter. No, spring, summer, fall, winter, spring. Yeah. Kim Kiduk. Yeah. It reminds me a bit of Kim Kiduk, the way it's both historical and really Mm. intense uh, and also poetic Mm. and beautiful at times. It's just a real weird mix that works incredibly well. Yeah, he's a great director. So for now, this concludes our examination of Mika. He doesn't really have so much more in terms of unpleasant cinema. There's the same year, 2006, as Imprint, he also had a film called Sunscarred, which has some of that. But I'm not sure it really adds much to the conversations. It's kind of a, a, a mid-tier Mika film, I think. It's it's okay. It has some, some playfulness. Um, yeah, it does have a lot of other movies, but mm. as you said, not a lot of extreme cinema from this point on. There's still a lot of stuff that's worth checking out, and a lot of stuff I will be checking out, because mm. these re-watchings of Mika movies has really given me a lot of interest in him as mm. a movie maker. Absolutely. And as a very versatile artist and storyteller and purveyor of stories from others. But... For next episode, we will be looking at another filmmaker. We're going to do some episodes on uh, Mikael Haneke, who's a completely different type of filmmaker. And his films are extreme and unpleasant in a very different way, but also, you know, bare interpretation and uh, very interesting to talk about. I think they represent very different types of things in cinema. But uh... but at the same time, they have a lot of similar qualities mm. like there's a there's some playfulness there yeah, yeah. and also a, a real sense of of playing with genre and knowing mm. a lot of uh, movie history mm. and, and stuff that's really really interesting and uh and fun Thomas, uh, do you have uh, any recommendations this week? I do. 
You know, I like to try and um, recommend different types of things now and again. And this time I'm going to recommend an Instagram profile called Imitation of Life. It's by a guy called Tom Flouts. Yeah, and he describes himself as an LA-based painter, sculptor, makeup artist. He does SFX for films, series, lots of stuff you've seen. Uh, like these hyper-realistic images. And he does a lot of wounded skin, burnt flesh and torn away faces. Looks really realistic and it's really quite... Uh, Nasty to look at a bunch of it. I mean, he does, you know, some superhero stuff as well. He does all sorts of stuff. He has like a tongue that's been burnt. So, I mean, it looks really realistic and quite unpleasant, especially if you scroll down. It, it requires a bit of a stomach to look at it. But um, <laughs> I was thinking of it in terms of imprint has a lot of like imagery. It's quite brutal. But this is like even more in, in the like the realistic uh, yeah. gruesomeness. Yeah, He's a brilliant sculptor and painter. Special effect artist. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I really love good special effects, mm. like practical effects. I mean, who doesn't? It's really... It's amazing. Yeah, and a disappearing art. Well, I mean, in some ways it's even more because you have all these television shows and stuff that also need... So I, I think it's a thriving business. Um... Well, I think it's growing again. Mm. There has been this sort of uh, period of almost everybody using CG mm. and in preference of, uh, you know... Some good old gore. Yeah, some good old gore. What about you, Svade? Do you have a bit of lovely recommendation for us? Yeah, I have uh, something really horrible. <laughs> uh, it's quite short. It's uh, it's hard to describe. It's mm. song remix making of video on okay. YouTube <laughs> okay. from a Twitch stream. Okay. <laughs> so it's a um, it's a comedian I've talked about before, Brian Lemon or Limmy as he's known, Scottish comedian, filmmaker, author, okay. Twitch streamer, funny guy. Yeah, funny guy, and he does a lot of song remixes on live on a stream. Mm. And then some of them are put into these small compilation videos and put on YouTube. And this song in particular, like the songs he makes remixes of are in general really horrible. <laughs> he, he has this like, usually the genre is like this hard techno, yeah. or, like this real excessive, like abrasive drums and uh, really cold electronic synths. And it just sounds really intense and horrible. And usually with like some, some shitty ass vocals on top. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and this one in particular is just so, so horrible. It is a cover of We'll Meet Again, I think it is called. <laughs> okay. Which is this, you know, really old-timey romantic mm. classic mm. that has nothing to do with electronic music. Yeah. <laughs> and he turns it into this just... It's hard to describe. It's just... It makes you feel sick. <laughs> like, it's so horrible. <laughs> like, it's really, it really accentuates the, the chromatic sort of increase of the, of the main um, chorus there. And it's in these intense electronic synths that are really like wavy, but at the same time, this hard bass percussion in the background. And it's just so, so disgusting. Mm. It's the worst piece of music I've heard in <laughs> all year. I swear to God, it's so disgusting. You'll enjoy it. Yeah. yeah just search We'll Meet Again, Let Me on YouTube and you'll find it. Sounds Enjoy. great. Yeah, we'll put links to that in the description. We'll also put links to some of the articles we discussed. Yeah, so that's it for uh, this Takashi Meek uh, series of episodes. If you want to get in touch with us, please send us an email at unpleasantmovies at protonmail.com or check out our Instagram. That's Instagram slash unpleasantmovies. The music for this episode is by the band Emulium. That's Jules Karning and Svare Ogor. My name is Thomas Simonsen Balmbra. My name is Svare Ogor. And we'll meet again some sunny day. <laughs> Take care. Bye.